Okay, on that note, Charlie, come up. I'm going to introduce, reintroduce you again to our body. If you don't know Charlie, um, uh, he and Carolyn were here a couple, well, a couple months ago, I guess, preaching and ministering. And uh, this couple, they live across town. Their son now lives in our house with us. Michael Brown, where are you? Right there. Hi, Michael. And uh, we've had the privilege of, of getting to know them more and more. They, Frontier is still their home church, even though they're across town, so they're not able to be here in person like every week. But we've also had the privilege of, of having them as, as, as kind of coaches for us. They were vineyard pastors for years and even coached church planters for many years. And so um, we've had the privilege, along with my brother and Evergreen, to really just glean from them uh, their, their wisdom, their hearts, their life, and just who they are. And it's been a privilege and an honor. And if you weren't here the last time, uh, Charlie brought the word, you're in for a treat. And it's, uh, he's, he's a gifted communicator, but, but I think the most important thing he carries is he carries a tangible expression of how God has invaded his life and touched him and marked him forever. And he preaches from that place, I have found. <laughs> you will be touched today. So why don't you stretch out your hands and just receive him and receive his gift unto the Lord. Father, we just thank you for this man. Thank you for Charlie and Carolyn and what they have invested into your kingdom for many, many years. Thank you for their family uh, as fresh grandparents that they are. <laughs> uh, and we receive the word through him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. How are you? Apparently asleep or dead. <laughs> Good morning. How are you? Good to see you guys all again today. Um, Christian said, I am Charlie Brown. This is the unique time of year where that kind of makes sense to people. Um, I actually sent an email. It was, a, it was a professional email to an attorney this past week, and my signature just says Charlie Brown. And he replied back all this stuff about Lucy pulling the football back. I mean, like a long paragraph. And I was like, that's kind of tacky. It's a little bit unprofessional, bro, but okay, we'll go with it. And then yesterday when uh, Carolyn and I were buying our Christmas tree, uh, we gave the guy the tree to put it in the net, and he said, uh, name? I said, Brown. And I just looked at him as a young kid. I said, actually, Charlie Brown. And he looked at me, and he looked at the tree, and I go, yes, you are holding a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. <laughs> he said, like, that's awesome. Go, yeah, that's awesome. So I just want to start with a little known, little known fact about... Um, so obviously we're going into the Christmas season. I just appreciate the, the testimonies and the things that people shared. Victor, I don't know if, bro, did you look at my notes? Because you, you talked, I literally looked over to Carol and I go, well, that was half my sermon. Um, that was awesome. And I feel a certain affinity to anybody with gray hair that comes to church in a Beatles shirt. I'm like, I think I have an affinity with this guy. So awesome. A little known fact about uh, the Christmas story. When the angels visited the shepherds and the shepherds went to the manger, one shepherd looked at the other shepherd and said, I hear they're not married. And the other one replied back, but it's a stable relationship. <laughs> so I am a dad and that's a dad joke. I'm, I'm a grandfather now, so now I can tell grandfather jokes. I like that one. Pastor dad joke. There you go. Um, if you want to follow along, you can open up your app to John chapter 1. We're going to take a look at that. I used to say open your Bibles, but now it's open your app to John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. 
In him was life, and that life was a light of all mankind. Skipping down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Today we're going to look at the idea of the incarnation, which is a big word for God. Become, incarnation, actually the, the core uh, part of the word uh, carne, like carne asada, meaning flesh or meat. So it's God literally becoming flesh, becoming meat and dwelling among us. Um, about five years ago, I had a corporate sales job, which meant that I spent a lot of windshield time here in Los Angeles traffic. And uh, I would certain things you do with windshield time. You call your clients because you got to do something. Um, you call family members and friends to make use of the time stuck in traffic. As a matter of fact, I have one of my sisters would call me many afternoons about three or four. She said, are you stuck in traffic? I said, yes, she said, great. And we talked for half an hour. She knew when I was going to be stuck in traffic. Sometimes you listen to rock music that the rest of your family doesn't really appreciate, but you like, and so you listen to it by yourself very loudly. She has rings on her fingers and bells on her shoes. I knew without asking she was into the blues, etc. The other thing that you do sometimes is you think, which is what I do from time to time stuck in traffic, sometimes to think big thoughts and deep thoughts. And I was stuck in traffic probably on the 134 headed to the 101 going north and not going anywhere in traffic. And I had this thought, well, how would I graph my life? And I thought, all right, go back to 10th grade geometry, which I did not do very well at. But I do remember that it would be a line, and the beginning of the line is a dot, and then a line. And then, assuming the line goes on forever, there would be an arrow. And I thought, that's kind of that's my life, that October 23rd, that that would be the dot. And I thought, no, the dot would actually be about nine months prior to that, somewhere in there. Uh, when I was conceived, that would be the dot. The line would go out. It would have that arrow at the end of the line. We all remember geography or, uh, geometry in 10th grade. And it would go out. And I thought, well, at some point in the future, that line, like I would get sick. I would be really sick. I'd be really, really sick. I would see Jesus. As believers, we are like superheroes. We never die. So I thought, well, that line is going to have the arrow on it, and it's going to go out to infinity because we have eternal life. But at some point when I cross over, let's just make that line gold. That would be cool. So I'm having this thought. And then I thought, stuck in traffic here in Los Angeles, how would I graph God? And I thought, well, it wouldn't be a dot and then a line with an arrow it would be a line with arrows on both sides going to infinity in both directions. Then I thought, wow, you cannot graph God with one line. And I thought, it couldn't be one-dimensional. And so I thought, well, it would be like another line, just a tick up, and then going forever in that direction and forever in that direction. Then I thought, well, that, that clearly is not enough. And so I began to think of all these lines going to infinity in both directions, almost forming a, a plane compared to my life, which was a line. And I thought, that is so much better than a line. I thought, but God isn't even two-dimensional. So I thought, going straight up 
And now from, there isn't a dot, but from where I stand, my perspective, now lines going just a click forward and then a click forward to that and a click forward to that. So now here's a three-dimensional lines going this way, lines going that way, and lines going this way and this way. And this idea that God was just all-encompassing. And you might be wondering, what kind of music do you listen to when you drive? Because you are tripping. And it's like, really, this is what you think about stuck in traffic in L.A.? On this one occasion, it was. John, writing to non-Jews, says, In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The word word, as many of you know, is logos or logos. It's this Greek idea that there was this initiative, this this initiating thought that created, well, that, that put in motion and then organized the cosmos. And, it, and even go back 600 years before Jesus, the Greeks had this idea of the logos. The Hebrews added more to that and said, well, if there is a thought, then there must be a thinker. And John is saying, in the beginning was this logos. In the beginning was this concept of a, a being today with Star Wars, we might say the force, although that breaks down, the force that initiates and organizes everything. And Jesus is him. Jesus is that person. He is the one who initiates and creates everything. Now, even given the, what we were talking about earlier, I thought, you know, if we just took a moment today and peeled back and slowed down and just kind of stopped, even in the middle of my message, if we just stopped for a second, if, if it's helpful to use this image of lines and, and this glowing gold orb encompassing everything, the logos, which initiates and controls everything, in this, as Christian was saying, in this year of the pandemic, sometimes it's just good around the holidays to slow down and say, you know what? God is sovereign. Today, as we talk about the rest of Advent, one of the things that gives us rest is to reflect on the fact that God is really, really big. And he has it. He is not freaked out. He's not caught off guard. He has a plan for you. He has a plan for me. That's still plan A. Nothing has been off track. We're not doing plan B. He is still moving among us. I love Martin Luther. Uh, in the 1500s, the church was a mess. It wasn't just a few little theological issues. It was an utter disaster. In the 1500s, Martin Luther began to try to right the ship, and he began to write profusely and speak profusely. And he is what we are, in our uh, tradition, we are considered Protestants, which comes from the word protesting. We were protesters. And, we, and he would protest what was going on. And yet, he said this, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, or my favorite part, or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, I did nothing. 
he did everything. That's my kind of ministry. Let's go have a beer and watch God move and rest in that. We are responsible to do what we're to do, but at the end of the day, we just rest that he has this. That was a little aside. Back to me tripping in the car with this orb, (laughs) trying to graph the existence of God and what does that mean compared to my life, which is a line. You mentioned the difference between a three-dimensional orb, and we know that even in Scripture there's a fourth dimension of heaven breaking in, which it does regularly, compared to our line. Now picture, if you will, this, this orb. Stay with me. Stay with me. Orb. Just light. Just... And now, cut into that a trough. Like a trough that a horse would eat out of. Boof. And it separates things out. And that trough at one side we'll call the beginning. And the other side of the trough we'll call the end of all things. And you and I watch our lives and we watch history as if we're sitting in the bleachers of the Rose Bowl watching the Rose Bowl go by, the Rose Parade go by. And we see the floats and we smell the flowers and we see everything. And that's how we experience history in this sort of linear way. God is in the helicopter who sees the beginning of the parade from the end of the parade. And this is the weird thing at the same time. He sees the beginning of history and the end of history at the same time. And we experience it like floats going by. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know that the first thing, so there are multiple creation accounts. Some people think that there are two different creation accounts at the beginning of Genesis. Clearly, John 1 is, a, is the New Testament creation account. So there are multiple inscriptions. Somebody say, well, what do you think about the creation account? You got to say, which one? There are multiple. But the first thing that God created, so in Genesis, it says, are you with me? I know I'm way out there. I promise you, I will land this puppy. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, in the beginning, was the word. This trough analogy, the orb, the trough, The first thing that God created wasn't the heavens and the earth. The first thing God created was a beginning. Because before, there was never a beginning. Nothing ever began. And it doesn't say, from the beginning was the word. It says, in the beginning was the word. And so imagine this orb of God's existence, this trough cut out that we call human history and the creation and the cosmos all contained in that trough. And Jesus stepped into the trough and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
It's an amazing mind bender to think that the creator literally became part of the creation. He came into that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The first time the word own came into his own, it's a neutral word. So it means the land or the earth. He came into his creation, this earth. The second time the word is used, it's masculine. Let me translate. He came into this earth, but the people did not receive him. But he came anyway. But he came anyway. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Two simple things of what that means. Two simple and I think powerful things. One means that in Jesus, we see who God is. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and has made him known. Jesus' passions are what the passions of the Father are. Jesus' response to attack is the way that God the Father responds to attack, the way that God the Creator responds to attack. The way that he responds to betrayal is the way that God responds to betrayal, the way that he has not great feelings about the self-righteous or the way that God has always felt about the self-righteous the way that he turns over the money changers in the temple and says, no, 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 my house is going to be a house of prayer, is God's perspective of the gathering uh, people of his community since forever. He reveals the, when, when we see Jesus forgiving and Jesus restoring, that is the very nature of God. That is exactly who he is. There's one of the writers who said that Christmas is a protest against every false image of God. It's a protest saying that, no, that's wrong, this is right. Just look at the person of Jesus and you will see exactly who God is and is from his behavior and his actions and his values and his love that we then interpret the rest of scripture, not the other way around. Specifically, in Victor... I love what you said today. Specifically, of everything that I could highlight today, I want to highlight this about the character of God, which stands in contrast to John, who is, who is writing to non-Jews. And John, that's why he used their word. Like today, we, would, we might say, speaking to people, there is a force like Star Wars. It's different, and, but let's start there. And his name is Jesus. So John is doing the same thing. And... One of the things I want to point out to you then, the Greek and the Roman gods were clearly created in the image of humans. And we know that because they were arrogant and they fought and they were selfish and their relationships were complicated. Clearly made in the image of humans. And people couldn't even decide on what God really was like, so they just made a bunch of them. Opposite, Scripture says we are created in Him's image and there is only one. But in showing, I think, the absolute, what, what is the prevailing character of God revealed in Christmas that has always been in there and help us, helps us to interpret everything else, and that is his nature of humility. His nature of humility. I'm telling you, the Greek and the Roman gods would not come up, or the Greeks and Romans would not come up with this idea of a God who humbles himself and becomes a child. 
That was that was would never have happened. In today's culture, a lot of people say, well, either God doesn't exist, or he is, in fact, like the force, in an impersonal force, or he's an, an oppressor who wants to take away all my fun. Kind of the three prevailing ideas of God. And in Jesus, we see something completely radically and totally different. God is, first and foremost, humble. Who walks into the very thing that he created and becomes the smallest part of it. And then becomes dependent upon the rest of it for everything that he needs. It's mind-blowing. You see, the incarnation didn't happen because God is large and transcendent. Although he is. The incarnation happened because God is humble and loving and kind. Second thing is that the incarnation validates our humanity. I think one of the things that people wrestle with in our culture and certainly in the church is I shouldn't have limitations. I should be able to do everything. I should be able to be the perfect parent, the perfect person who serves the church, the perfect this, be the best person at my work because I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm representing God, and, and we just put all this stuff on ourselves. And in the incarnation, Jesus says, I became human. I didn't run from my humanity. I said this last time, I didn't run from my humanity. I ran into my humanity. I lived within limitations. Take a break. Because you should live within your limitations and be okay with that as well. And some days I got discouraged. We know he did. And it's okay to, um, to have feelings of grief. We know he had feelings of grief. And he didn't beat himself up over it. Sometimes it's okay to reach out for help. Victor was talking about that again earlier today. Jesus knew that he was betrayed by Judas. He knew the Romans were coming for him. And he turned to his wingmen and he said, look, I'm going to go out to the garden and pray. I really just need one thing from you guys. Would you just come and pray with me? I am reaching out in my time of need. I'm overwhelmed to the point that I'm sweating blood. Would you guys please be my friends and, and, and support me at this time of need? And they fell asleep. But he was acting very human and, and the perfect healthy human where he was going through something and reached out. Today, in this holiday season, during a pandemic, holidays are always when people get depressed. Every day the pandemic goes uh, longer and longer, people just go, perseverance is getting hard. I am telling you, that's okay. But reach out for help because Jesus did. If you want to be like Christ, if you want to be Christ-like, act in, in humility and reach out to someone for help. In essence, the incarnation is Emmanuel, God with us. I'm going to read to you, and I'm, I'm closing. That's all I have. But I'm going to read to you, and then we're going to do a little bit more ministry time. My favorite Christmas story. Ready for my favorite Christmas story? I bet you, you've never heard it. Every time I read this, I go, I get it. It's actually by a guy named Ian Hargrave. Ian Hargrave 
Um, it's actually, you know, I don't mean to confuse. It's a book by Michael Lloyd. Michael Lloyd tells Ian's story and then comments on it. I'm going to read to you Ian's story. I'm going to read to you Michael's comment. Just leave it alone when it's perfect. Ian Hargrave is a missionary from England to Lima, Peru. They went back to England. Their uh, young girl grew up just a little bit. She's still very young. They go now back to Lima for three-year stint. It did not go well. The readjusting back into culture, their daughter has had it. With no friends, all she wanted to do was go back home to England. I'm going to pick up the story there. This is Ian. One morning I go up to her room to discover to my dismay that she has packed her bag. What are you doing, I ask. I'm leaving this horrible place and going home, she exclaims. Her voice is absolutely firm and her chin set like stone. I go, down, I go downstairs to talk to my wife. We're concerned that she may, may just go out that front gate and wander off. As we talk, she comes downstairs with her rucksack on her back and heads for the door. We try to tell her that it just isn't possible to go back to England, that we are thousands of miles away, but there's no reasoning with her. Right, she says, I'm going. And she walks out the door. I look at my wife and decide there's only one thing to do. Okay, I say, I'll come with you. And off we set. We open the front gate. Which way, I ask? Left, she replies without hesitation. We walk together to the end of the block. Which way now? Straight on. We cross the road and walk another block. Left again, she proclaims without a trace of uncertainty. Another block. Right. Another. Straight on. We walk briskly on. Left. Left. Straight on. Right. Straight on. But after a while, the pace starts to slow and her hand grips mine a little more tightly. After quite some time, we arrive at yet another corner. Which way, I gently ask. Her lip begins to quiver and she looks down at the floor. I don't know, she says, and bursts into tears. I kneel down beside her on the path and hug her very tightly. We are both weeping profusely. We have lost our way. After a lot of struggle over the next few weeks and months, we will find it again, but it will not involve a journey back to England or anywhere else for that matter. Michael Lloyd's comment. It's a parable of the human condition. We, none of us, actually know where we're going. There's no reasoning with us. We are driven by a sense of dissatisfaction with where we are. And we want to strike out on our own, if only to give ourselves a sense of being in control. The reality is, of course, is that we're lost. And we have to go down many blocks and find ourselves in many a blind alley before, perhaps, we'll admit it. It's a parable, too, about God. He doesn't stop us. He didn't stop Adam and Eve. He didn't stop Israel. He didn't stop the prodigal son. He didn't stop the Roman executioners. He doesn't stop us when we strike out on our own. He doesn't stop us, but nor does he abandon us. He comes with us, which is the name Emmanuel, God with us. He comes with us. He joins us in our lostness. He does not leave us to our own. 
He waits until we come to the necessary recognition of our condition. He holds us and weeps with us in the pain of our own making, and then slowly he helps us to a different way, a way that deals with our sense of dissatisfaction without giving into our directionless defiance. At heart, it's a parable of the Incarnation. That's why I call this my favorite Christmas story. Because the Incarnation is about God joining us in our lostness. It's about God visiting and redeeming his people. It's about God becoming a human being. It's about God becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. Would you go ahead and stand? The incarnation, this giant orb stepping into creation to humbly walk alongside of us, uniquely qualifies Jesus to be our Redeemer, to be our Restorer, to take our grief and turn it into purpose and hope. He is uniquely qualified to be our healer, as we've heard testimony of today. And if you're here today and you need that touch of heaven, we are in the Christmas season where the very thing we celebrate is heaven invading earth. If you need that touch of heaven, there is just simply one thing that says in verse 12, yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become a child of God. Receiving is not passive. It's actually one of the most active things you do. Because if somebody gives you a gift and you don't actually take it, the gift is worthless. Jesus later said at the end of John, the end of the book, to his disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. Begins by an, with an admonition to receive. The book of John ends with an admonition to receive. To receive what he's done, to receive that, it's not passive, but it is humble. In recovery, they would talk about it being one of the hardest steps. It's called surrender. It's called giving up. It's called grabbing the finger of Jesus when you're lost and you're giving directions and you finally realize, all right, I really don't know where I'm going, but you do, and I'm going to let you lead. So if that's you here this morning, I encourage you just to receive everything he has for you. If you're here today and you heard some of those testimonies and you need a touch physically, you need a touch emotionally, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come now in Jesus' name as we intentionally humble ourselves before you to receive everything you have for us, to receive the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and break depression in Jesus' name that you'd break discouragement in Jesus' name, that you'd break isolation and the lie of isolation in Jesus' name that I don't need anybody. That is a lie from the pit of hell. I break that in Jesus' name, that we need each other and we need to connect. And Lord, forgive us of our pride of trying to stay isolated and trying to fix it ourselves. And I pray that you would come and invade that place Lord, that you'd bring restoration and renewal now in Jesus' name. Lord, we declare that you are uniquely qualified to be the one person to actually meet us where we're at, not leave us there, but take us out of the mundane life that we have into a life of glory with you. 
Let it come, Lord. Lord, I pray for restoration in marriages. I pray for restoration in, in, um, in relationships. Thank you, Lord.